7. Captain Lund sent a package containing 50 sable skins to his brother in Kronstadt, and another with a silk dress pattern to a lady in St. Petersburg. In the mail on the Ingoda there were 1,200 pounds of sable fur sent by Mr. Chase to his agent in St. Petersburg. Money to any amount can be remitted, and its delivery insured. I have known 20,000 rubles sent on a single order. Parcels for transportation by post must be carefully and securely packed. Furs, silks, clothing, and all things of that class are enveloped in repeated layers of oil cloth and canvas to exclude water and guard against abrasion. Light articles, like bonnets, must be packed with abundance of paper filling them to their proper shape, and very securely boxed. A Siberian lady once told me that a friend in St. Petersburg sent her a lot of bonnets, laces, and other finery purchased at great expense. She waited a long time with feminine anxiety, and was delighted when told her box was at the post office. What was her disappointment to find the articles had been packed in a light case which was completely smashed. She never made use of any part of its contents. In crossing Siberian rivers the mail is sometimes wet and it is a good precaution to make packages waterproof. A package of letters for New York from Nikolaevsky enveloped in canvas, by advice of Russian friends, and it went through unharmed. The post wagons are changed at every station, and the mail while being transferred is not handled with care. Frail articles must be boxed so that no tossing will injure them. My lady friend told me of a bride who ordered her trousseau from St. Petersburg and prepared for a magnificent wedding. The precious property arrived 48 hours before the time fixed for the ceremony. Moving accidents by flood and field had occurred. The bridal paraphernalia was soaked, crushed, and reduced to a mess that no one could resolve into its original elements. The wedding was postponed and a new supply of goods ordered. The male is always in charge of a postillion, who is generally a Cossack, and his duty is much like that of a male agent in other countries. He delivers and receives the sacks of matter at the post offices, and guards them on the road. During our voyage on the Ingoda there was no supervision over the mail bags after they were deposited in our cabin. I passed many hours in their companionship, and if Borstein and I had chosen to rifle them we could have done so at our leisure. Possibly an escape from the penalties of the law would have been less easy. Our cook was an elderly personage, with thin hair, a yellow beard, and a much neglected toilet. On the first morning I saw him at his ablutions, and was not altogether pleased with his manner. He took a half tumbler of water in his mouth and then squirted the fluid over his hands, rubbing them meanwhile with invisible soap. He was quite skillful, but I could never relish his dinners if I had seen him any time within six hours. His general appearance was that of having slept in a gutter without being shaken afterwards. The day of our departure from Nikolaevsk was like the best of our Indian summer. There was but little wind, the faintest breath coming now and then from the hills on the southern bank. The air was of a genial warmth, the sky free from clouds and only faintly dimmed with the haze around the horizon. The forest was in the mellow tints of autumn, and the wide expanse of Follifru's trees, dotted at frequent intervals with the evergreen pine, rivaled the October hues of our New England landscape. Hills and low mountains rose on both banks of the river and made a beautiful picture. The hills covered with forest from base to summit, sloped gently to the water's edge or retreated here and there behind bits of green meadow. In the distance was a background of blue mountains glowing in sunshine or dark in shadow, and varying in outline as we moved slowly along. The river was ruffled only by the ripples of the current or the motion of our boat through the water. 
Just a year earlier I descended the St. Lawrence from Lake Ontario to Quebec. I saw nothing on the great Canadian River that equaled the scenery of my first day's voyage on the Amour. Soon after leaving Nikolaevsk we met several loads of hay floating with the current to a market at the town. On the meadows along the river the grass is luxuriant, and hay requires only the labor of cutting and curing. During the day we passed several points where haymaking was in progress. Cutting was performed with an instrument resembling the short scythe used in America for cutting bushes. After it was dried, the hay was brought to the river bank on dray-like carts. An American hay wagon would have accomplished twice as much. With equal labor, the hay is like New England hay from natural meadows, and is delivered at Nikolaevsk for six or eight dollars a ton. Cattle and horses thrive upon it. If I may judge by the condition of the stock I saw, for its transportation two flat-bottom boats are employed, and held about twelve feet apart by timbers. A floor on these timbers and over the boat serves to keep the hay dry. Men are stationed at both ends of the boats, and when once in the stream there is little to do beside floating with the current. A mile distant one of these barges appears like a haystack which an accident has set adrift. We saw many Gilyak boats descending the river with the current or struggling to ascend it. The Gilyaks form the native population in this region and occupy 39 villages with about 2,000 inhabitants. The villages are on both banks from the mouth of the river to Marians, and out of the reach of all inundations. Distance lends enchantment to the view of their houses, which will not bear close inspection. Some of the houses might contain a half dozen families of ordinary size, and were well adapted to the climate. While we took wood at a Gilyak village I embraced the opportunity to visit the Amber originals. The village contained a dozen dwellings and several fish houses. The buildings were of logs or poles, split in halves or used whole, and were roofed with poles covered with a thatch of long grass to exclude rain and cold. Some of the dwelling houses had the solid earth for floors, while others had floorings of hewn planks. The storehouses were elevated on posts like those of an American corn barn, and were wider and lower than the dwellings. Each storehouse had a platform in front where canoes fishing nets, and other portable property were stored. These buildings were the receptacles of dried fish for the winter use of dogs and their owners. The elevation of the floor serves to protect the contents from dogs and wild animals. I was told that no locks were used and that theft was a crime unknown. The dwellings were generally divided into two apartments, one a sort of anti-room and receptacle of housekeeping goods, and the other the place of residence. Pots, kettles, knives, and wooden pans were the principal articles of household use I discovered. At the storehouses there were several fish baskets of birch or willow twigs. A Gilyak gentleman does not permit fire carried into or out of his house, not even in a pipe. This is not owing to his fear of conflagrations, but to a superstition that such an occurrence may bring him ill luck in hunting or fishing. It was in the season of curing fish, and the stench that greeted my nostrils was by no means delightful. Visits to dwellings or magazines would have been much easier had I possessed a sponge saturated with cologne water. Fish were in various stages of preparation, some just hung upon poles, while others were nearly ready for the magazine. The manner of preparation is much the same as in Kamchatka, save that the largest fish are skinned before being cut into strips. The poorest qualities go to the dogs, and the best are reserved for bipeds, though the natives do the most of the fishing on the Amur. They do not have a monopoly of it, as some of the Russians indulge in the sport. One old fellow that I saw had a boat so full of salmon, that there was no room for more. Now and then a fish went overboard, 
causing an expression on the boatman's face as if he were suffering from a dose of astonishment and to take drops in equal proportions. There were dogs everywhere, some lying around loose, and others tied to posts under the storehouses. Some walked about and manifested an unpleasant desire to taste the calves of my legs, all barked, growled, and whined in a chorus like a Pawnee concert. There were big dogs and little dogs, white, black, gray, brown, and yellow dogs, and not one friendly. They did not appear courageous, but I was not altogether certain of their dispositions. Their owners sought to quiet them, but they refused comfort. Those dogs had some peculiarities of those in Kamchatka, but their blood was evidently much debased, they appeared to be a mixture of Kamchadale, Greyhound, Bulldog, and Cur, the latter predominating. They are used for hunting at all seasons, and for towing boats in summer and dragging sledges in winter. I was told that since the Russian settlement of the Amor the Gilyak dogs have degenerated, in consequence of too much familiarity with Muscovite canines. Nikolaevsk appeared quite cosmopolitan, in the matter of dogs, and it was impossible to say what breed was most numerous. One day I saw nineteen in a single group and no two alike. Near the entrance of the village an old man was repairing his nets, which were stretched along a fence. He did not regard us as we scrutinized his jacket of blue cotton, and he made no response to a question which Borstein asked. Further along were two women putting fish upon poles for drying and a third was engaged in skinning a large salmon. The women did not look up from their work, and were not inclined to amiability. They had Mongol features, complexion, eyes, and hair, the latter thick and black. Some of the men wear it plaited into cues, and others let it grow pretty much at will. Each woman I saw had it braided into cues, which hung over her shoulders. In their ears they wore long pendants, and their dresses were generally arranged with taste. When recalled by the steam whistle we left the village and took a short route down a steep bank to the boat. In descending, my feet passed from under me, and I had the pleasure of sliding about ten yards before stopping. Had it not been for a Cossack who happened in my way I should have entered the Amor after the manner of an otter, and afforded much amusement to the spectators, though comparatively little to myself. The sliding attracted no special attention as it was supposed to be the American custom and I did not deem it prudent to make an explanation lest the story might bring discredit to my nationality. Chapter XII. I had a curiosity to examine the ancient monuments at Tyr, opposite the mouth of the Angoon River, but we passed them in the night without stopping. There are several traditions concerning their origin. The most authentic story gives them an age of six or seven hundred years. They are ascribed to an emperor of the Yuan dynasty who visited the mouth of the Amur and commemorated his journey by building the monastery of eternal repose. The ruined walls of this monastery are visible, and the shape of the building can be easily traced. In some places the walls are eight or ten feet high. Mr. Collins visited the spot in 1857 and made sketches of the monuments. He describes them situated on a cliff 150 feet high from which there is a magnificent view east and west of the Amur and the mountains around it. Toward the south there are dark forests and mountain ridges, some of them rough and broken. To the north is the mouth of the Angoon, with a delta of numerous islands covered with forest, while in the northwest the valley of the river is visible for a long distance. Back from the cliff is a tableland several miles in width. This tableland is covered with oak, aspen, and fir trees, and has a rich undergrowth of grass and flowers. On a point of the cliff there are two monuments. A third is about 400 yards away. 
One is a marble shaft on a granite pedestal, a second is entirely granite, and the third partly granite and partly porphyry. The first and third bear inscriptions in Chinese, Mongol, and Tibetan. One inscription announces that the Emperor Yuan founded the Monastery of Eternal Repose, and the other's record a prayer of the Thibetans, Archimandrite Avakum, a learned Russian, who deciphered the inscriptions, says the Thibetan prayer of Mani Badkum is given in three languages. See footnote C, Abahu in his recollections of a journey through Thibet and Tartary, says, the Thibetans are eminently religious. There exists at last a touching custom which we are in some sort jealous of finding among infidels. In the evening as soon as the light declines, the Thibetans, men, women, and children, cease from all business and assemble in the principal parts of the city and in the public squares. When the groups are formed, everyone sits down on the ground and begins slowly to chant his prayers in an undertone, and this religious concert produces an immense and solemn harmony throughout the city. The first time we heard it we could not help making a sorrowful comparison between this pagan town, where all prayed in common, with the cities of the civilized world, where people would blush to make the sign of the cross in public. The prayer chanted in these evening meetings varies according to the season of the year, that which they recite to the rosary is always the same, and is only composed of six syllables, Oem money bad come. This formula, called briefly the money, is not only heard from every mouth, but is everywhere written in the streets, in the interior of the houses, on every flag and streamer floating over the buildings, printed in the Lange, Tartar, and Tibetan characters. The Lamas assert that the doctrine contained in these words is immense, and that the whole life of man is not sufficient to measure its depth and extent. The lowest of the monuments is five and the tallest eight feet in height. Near them are several flat stones with grooves in their surface which lead to the supposition of their employment for sacrificial purposes. Mr. Chase told me at Nikolaevsh that he thought one of the monuments was used as an altar when the monastery flourished. There are no historical data regarding the ruins beyond those found on the stones. Many of the Russians and Chinese believe the site was selected by Genghis Khan, and the monastery commemorated one of his triumphs. The natives look upon the spot with veneration, and frequently go there to practice their mysterious rites. Before leaving Nikolaevsk I asked the captain of the Arigoda how fast his boat could steam. Oh, said he, ten or twelve versts an hour. Accustomed to our habit of exaggerating the powers of a steamer, I expected no more than eight or nine versts. I was surprised to find we really made twelve to fifteen versts an hour. Ten thousand miles from St. Louis and New Orleans I at last found what I sought for several years a steamboat captain who understated the speed of his boat. Justice to the man requires the explanation that he did not own her. My second day on the Amor was much like the first in the general features of the scenery. Hills and mountains on either hand, meadows bounding one bank or the other at frequent intervals, islands dotted here and there with pleasing irregularity, or stretching for many miles along the valley, forests of different trees, and each with its own particular hue, a canopy of hazy sky meeting ranges of misty peaks in the distance, these form the scene. Someone asks if all the tongues in the world can tell how the birds sing and the lilacs smell. Equally difficult is it to describe with pen upon paper the beauties of that and or scenery. Each bend of the stream gave us a new picture. It was the unrolling of a magnificent panorama such as no man has yet painted. And what can I say? There was mountain, meadow, forest, island, field, cliff, and valley. There were the red leaves of the autumn maple, the yellow of the birch, 
the deep green of pine and hemlock, the verdure of the grass, the wide river winding to reach the sea, and we slowly stemming its current. How powerless are words to describe a scene like this. The passengers of our boat were of less varied character than those on a Mississippi steamer. There were two Russian merchants, who joined us at meal times in the cabin but slept in the after part of the boat. One was owner of a gold mine 200 miles north of Nikolaevsk, and a general dealer in everything along the Amur. He had wandered over Mongolia and northern China in the interest of commerce, and I greatly regretted my inability to talk with him and learn of the regions he had visited. He was among the first to penetrate the Celestial Empire under the late commercial treaty, and traveled so far that he was twice arrested by local authorities. He knew every fare from Leipzig to Peking and had been an industrious commercial traveler through all northern Asia. Once, below Sonsen, on the Songari River, he was attacked by thieves where he had halted for the night. With a single exception his crew was composed of Chinese, and these ran away at the first alarm. With his only Russian companion he attempted to defend his property, but the odds were too great, especially as his gun could not be found. He was made prisoner and compelled to witness the plundering of his cargo everything valuable being taken, the thieves left him, in the morning he proceeded down the stream, not caring to engage another crew, he floated with the current and shared with his Russian servant the labor of steering, the next night he was robbed again, and the robbers, angry at finding so little to steal, did not leave him his boat, after much difficulty he reached a native village and procured an old skiff, with this he finished his journey unmolested, there were fifteen or twenty deck passengers, a fair proportion being women and children. Among the latter was a black-eyed girl of fifteen, in a calico dress and wearing a shawl pinned around a pretty face. On Sunday morning she appeared in neat apparel and was evidently desirous of being seen. There were two old men dressed in coarse cloth of a butternut hue, that reminded me of Arkansas and Tennessee. The morning we started one of them was seated on the deck counting a pile of copper coin with great care. Two, three, four times he told it off piece by piece, and then folded it carefully in the corner of his kerchief, in all he had less than a ruble, but he preserved it as if it were a million, the baggage of the deck passengers consisted of boxes and household furniture in general, not omitting the ever-present samovar, this baggage was piled on the deck and was the reclining place of its owners by day, in the night they had the privilege of the after cabin, where they slept on the seats and floor, wooding up was not performed with American alacrity, to bring the steamer to land she was anchored thirty feet from shore, and two men in a skiff carried a line to the bank and made it fast. With this line and the anchor the boat was warped within ten feet of the shore, another line keeping the stern in position. An ordinary plank a foot wide made the connection with the solid earth. These boats have no guards and cannot overhang the land like our western craft. Wood was generally piled fifty, a hundred, or five hundred feet from the landing place wherever most convenient to the owner, no one seems to think of placing it near the water's edges with us, they told me that this had been done formerly, and the freshets had carried the wood away, the peasants, warned by their loss, are determined to keep on the safe side, when all was ready the deckhands went very leisurely to work, each carried a piece of rope which he looped around a few sticks of wood as a boy secures his bundle of school books, the rope was then slung upon the shoulder, the wood hanging over the back of the carrier and occasionally coming loose from its fastenings. No man showed any sign of hurrying, but all acted as if there were nothing in the world as cheap as time. 
One day I watched the wooding operation from beginning to end. It took an hour and a half and twelve men to bring about four cords of wood on board. There was but one man displaying any activity, and he was falling from the plank into the river. The Russian measure of wood is the sajin fathom, and a sajin of wood is a pile of fathom long, wide, and high. The Russian marine fathom measures six feet like our own, but the land fathom is seven feet. It is by the land fathom that everything on solid earth is measured. A stick seven feet long is somewhat inconvenient, and therefore they cut wood half a fathom in length. We landed our first freight at Novomihailovsky, a Russian village on the southern bank of the river. The village was small and the houses were far from palatial. The inhabitants live by agriculture in summer, sending their produce to Nikolaevsk, and by supplying horses for the postal service in winter. I observed here and at other villages an example of Russian economy. Not able to purchase whole panes of window glass the peasants use fragments of glass of any shape they can get. These are set in pieces of birch bark cut to the proper form and the edges held by wax or putty. The bark is then fastened to the window sash much as a piece of mosquito netting is fixed in a frame. Near Springfield, Missouri, I once passed a night in a farmer's house. The dwelling had no windows, and when we breakfasted we were obliged to keep the door open to give us light. Though the thermometer was at zero, with a strong wind blowing, I have lived in this house seventeen years, said the owner have a good farm and own four niggers, but we could not afford the expense of the window, even of the Siberian kind, ten or fifteen miles above this village we reached Mihailovsky, containing a hundred houses and three or four hundred inhabitants, from the river this town appeared quite pretty and thriving, the houses were substantially built, and many had flower gardens in front and neat fences around them, between the town and the river there were market gardens in flourishing condition, bearing most of the vegetables in common use through the north. The town is along a ridge of easy ascent, and most of the dwellings are 30 or 40 feet above the river. Its fields and gardens extend back from the river wherever the land is fertile and easiest cleared of the forest. On the opposite side of the river there are meadows where the peasants engage in hay cutting. The general appearance of the place was like that of an ordinary village on the lower St. Lawrence, though there were many points of difference. In several rye fields the grain had been cut and stacked. Near our landing was a mill, where a man, a boy, and a horse were manufacturing meal at the rate of 7 pounds or 280 pounds a day. The whole machinery was on the most primitive scale. Entering the house of the mill owner I found the principal apartment quite neat and well arranged, its walls being whitewashed and decorated with cheap lithographs and woodcuts. Among the latter were several from the Illustrated London News and L'Illustration Universelle. The sleeping room was fitted with banks like those on steamboats, though somewhat wider. There was very little clothing on the beds, but several sheepskin coats and coverlids were hanging on a fence in front of the house. Borstein had business at the telegraph station, with a ride accompanied him. The operator furnished a blank for the dispatch, and when it was written and paid for he gave a receipt. The receipt stated the hour and minute when the dispatch was taken, the name of the sender, the place where sent, the number of words, and the amount paid. This form is invariably adhered to in the Siberian Telegraph Service. The telegraph on the lower Ramor was built under the supervision of Colonel Romanov and was not completed at the time of my visit. It commenced at Nikolaevsk and followed the south bank of the Amor to Khodorovka at the mouth of the Uzuri. At Mariansk there was a branch to Dekastris, and from Khodorovka the line extended along the Uzuri and over the mountains to Posyed and Vladivostok. 
from Khadarovka it was to follow the north bank of the Amur to the Shilka, to join the line from Irkutsk and St. Petersburg. Arrangements have been made recently to lay a cable from Poziet to Hakabadi in Japan, and thence to Shanghai and other parts of China. When the cable proposed by Major Collins is laid across the Pacific Ocean, and the break in the Amur line is closed up, the telegraph circuit around the globe will be complete. The telegraph is operated on the Morse system with instruments of Prussian manufacture. Compared to our American instruments the Prussian ones are quite clumsy, though they did not appear so in the hands of the operators. The signal key was at least four times as large as ours, and could endure any amount of rough handling. The other machinery was on a corresponding scale. A merchant who knew Mr. Borstein invited us to his house, where he brought a lunch of bread, cheese, butter, and milk for our entertainment. Salted cucumbers were added, and the repast ended with tea. In the principal room there was a Connecticut clock in one corner, and the windows were filled with flowers, among which were the morning glory, aster, and verbena. Several engravings adorned the walls, most of them printed at Berlin. We purchased a loaf of sugar, and were shown a bare skin seven feet long without ears and tail. The original and first legitimate owner of the skin was killed within a mile of town. In addition to his commerce and farming, this merchant was superintendent of a school where several Gilyak boys were educated. It was then vacation, and the boys were engaged in catching their winter supply of fish. At the merchant's invitation we visited the school buildings. The study room was much like a backwoods schoolroom in America, having rude benches and desks, but with everything clean and well made. The copy books exhibited fair specimens of penmanship. On a desk lay a well-worn reading book containing a dozen of Aesop's fables translated into a Russian and profusely illustrated. It corresponded to an American second reader. There was a dormitory containing eight beds, and there was a washroom, a dining room, and a kitchen, the latter separate from the main building. Close at hand was a forge where the boys learned to work in iron, and a carpenter shop with a full set of tools and a turning lathe. The superintendent showed me several articles made by the pupils, including wooden spoons, forks, bowls, and cups, and he gave me for a souvenir a seal cut in pewter, bearing the word Fulihelm in Russian letters, and having a neatly turned handle. The school is in operation ten months of each year. The superintendent said the children of the Russian peasants could attend if they wished, but very few did so. The teacher was a subordinate priest of the Eastern Church. The expense of the establishment was paid by government, with the design of making the boys useful in educating the Gilyaks. The Gilyaks of the Lower Amor are pagans, and the attempts to Christianize them have not been very successful thus far. Their religion consists in the worship of idols and animals, and their priests or shamans correspond to the medicine man of the American Indians. Among animals they revere the tiger, and I was told no instance was known of their killing one. The remains of a man killed by a tiger are buried without ceremony, but in the funerals of other persons the Gilyaks follow very nearly the Chinese custom. The bear is also sacred, but his sanctity does not preserve him from being killed. In hunting this beast they endeavor to capture him alive, once taken and securely bound he is placed in a cage in the middle of a village, and there fattened upon fish. On fate days he is led, or rather dragged, in procession, and of course is thoroughly muzzled and bound. Finally a great day arrives on which Bruin takes a prominent part in the festival by being killed. There are many superstitious ceremonies carefully observed on such occasions. The ears, jawbones, and skull of the bear are hung upon trees to ward off evil spirits, 
and the flesh is eaten, as it is supposed to make all who partake of it both fortunate and courageous. I did not have the pleasure of witnessing any of these Ursine festivals, but I saw several bear cages and looked upon a bear while he lunched on cold salmon. If the bear were more gentle in his manners he might become a household pet among the Gilyaks, but at present he is not in favor, especially where there are small children. Ernerman's were formerly domesticated for catching rats. The high price of cats confining their possession to the wealthy. Cats have a half-religious character and are treated with great respect. Since the advent of the Russians the supply is very good. Before they came the manger merchants used to bring only male cats that could not trouble themselves about posterity. The price was sometimes a hundred rubles for a single mazer. And by curtailing the supply the managers kept the market good. The Gilyaks, like nearly all the natives of northern Asia, are addicted to shamanism. The shaman combines the double function of priest and doctor, ministering to the physical and spiritual being at the same time. When a man is taken sick he is supposed to be attacked by an evil spirit and the shaman is called to practice exorcism. There is a distinct spirit for every disease and he must be propitiated in a particular manner. While practicing his profession the shaman contorts his body and dances like one insane, and howls worse than a dozen Kimchandale dogs. He is dressed in a fantastic manner and beats a tambourine during his performance. To accommodate himself to the different spirits he modulates his voice changes the character of his dance, and alters his costume. Both doctor and patient are generally decked with wood shavings while the work is going on. Sometimes an effigy of the sick person is prepared, and the spirit is charmed from the man of flesh to the one of straw. The shaman induces him to take up lodgings in this effigy, and the success of his persuasion is apparent when the invalid recovers. If the patient dies the shaman declares that the spirit was one over which he had no control but he does not hesitate to take pay for his services. A Russian traveler who witnessed one of these exorcisms said that the shaman howled so fearfully that two Chinese merchants who were to present out of curiosity fled in very terror. The gentleman managed to endure it to the end, but did not sleep well for a week afterward. The Gilyaks believe in both good and evil spirite.